Proverbs chapter 5. And the message is entitled tonight, this title of the message is The Danger, the Disappointment, and Destruction of, of Adultery. The general instruction of chapter 5 here of Proverbs is to avoid forbidden sexual sin. And to stay within the boundaries of marriage, the boundaries that God has set. And chapter 5 is introduced with an exhortation to pay attention to wisdom and understanding in verses 1 and 2. When married people honor and respect sex as God instructs them in his word, they can experience increasing enjoyment and enrichment in their marriage, in their intimacy. But when people break the rules of God, the result is just the opposite. And they experience disappointment disillusionment, and then they have to search for larger doses, if you will, or experiences of sexual adventure in order to attain the imaginary pleasure level that they're seeking. God created sex, not only for reproduction, but also for enjoyment. You know, he didn't put the marriage barriers around sex to rob us of pleasure, but to increase pleasure and to protect it. And in this chapter, Solomon explains the disappointments that come when people violate God's loving laws of sexual purity. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. It says that sexual intimacy outside of marriage is wrong. Plain and simple. No ins, afts, or buts. No conditions. It is wrong outside of marriage. But you hear those that will say, what about consenting adults? Doesn't matter. What if they're in love? Doesn't matter. What if they plan on getting married? It doesn't matter. God's word is God's word. Sexual intimacy is only within the confines of marriage. And I remember when I used to do a lot of premarital counseling. You know, we'd have a, a premarital interview and the young couple would come in and, you know, we asked them their opinion on, on premarital sexual relationship. And you would be a man, Christians for a long time, because we'd ask how long you've been a Christian, you know, how long you've been going to church and, and, and the questions that see what their spiritual background is like. And many with, with the, that had claimed to be Christians for a long time would say, well, I believe if you're in love, it's okay. All right. Well, can you show me where that's in the Bible? Because that's, that's where it starts. And they think it's okay. Or they can, if they're in love and they're, you know, they're, they plan on getting married, they're living together. Well, where's that okay? And even though this commandment specifically mentions adultery, it includes the sexual sins forbidden in other places in Scripture. God created sex, so God has every right to tell us how to use it properly. But the problem today is that our society laughs at, at biblical standards. And you hear them say, come on now, man. This is, this is the 21st century. You're still living in the dark ages. They say, you know, God created sexual intimacy, so, so why shouldn't we enjoy it? Times have changed, so what's the big deal? It's perfectly natural. 
Then we see the, the sexual sin involving politicians and famous athletes, movie stars, and sad to say, some pastors too. Sexual sin is one of the main subjects of so many movies today and music. Sex is popular and it sells. I was reading about internet pornography and it says internet pornography by the numbers, a significant threat. $3,075.64 is being spent on pornography on the internet. 372 people are typing the word adult into a search engine every day. 37 pornographic videos are created in the United States. 2.5 billion emails containing, contain, containing porn are sent or received. 68 million search queries related to pornography. 25% of total searches are generated. Now the law says it's fine. It's legal. But understand, popularity does not decide what's right and what's wrong. You know, the law says many things are legal that the Bible says are evil. And when you stand before God to be judged for your sins, there won't be a jury of your buddies there. There won't be a jury of your peers sitting at the white throne judgment. Not that that's where you're going to be, because that's only for, you know, the unbeliever. But for those that don't know the Lord and who have this idea that, hey, it's, it's fine. You know, the sign of the times. It's going to be just them and God. So why should we be concerned about sexual sins? Because the Bible gives us some real good reasons why we should be concerned. And the Lord covers these reasons in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Proverbs. First of all, we should be concerned because sexual sin is disappointing in the end. And that's what we're going to learn in chapter 5. Second, it slowly destroys you. We learn that in chapter 6. And third, it's ultimately deadly. Chapter 7. And that's why God says, don't do it. And here Solomon explains to us the disappointments that people experience when they break God's laws when it comes to sexual purity. So let's begin now in, in, in Proverbs 5, beginning with verse 1. And Solomon begins by saying, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding. The warning here is a lot like the one in chapter 4, verse 20. Except here the teacher says, Pay attention to my wisdom, lend your ear to my understanding, instead of pay attention to my words and incline your ear to my sayings in chapter 4, verse 20. So it's not just wisdom and understanding, preferably, but it's wisdom that he's taken to himself, made his own, and knows by experience that it's true wisdom. Verse 2. That you may preserve discretion and your lips may, be, may, may keep knowledge. This verse gives us the purposes or the results of the warning given in verse 1. First, that you may preserve discretion. That is, that you may keep thoughtfulness and follow counsel and set a proper guard or control over your thoughts. And keep them within the proper and legitimate limits. Or form such decisions which being well considered and wise may result in wise behavior. Thoughts and plans are the necessary groundworks that lead to actions and conduct. That you may not conceive in mind any evil or vanity. That you may guard your thoughts 
or reflection. The second purpose in view is, and your lips may keep knowledge. Those lips keep or preserve knowledge, which literally means keep the instruction of wisdom. Or which allow nothing to pass through them that doesn't come from the knowledge of God. And when they speak, those lips give sound wisdom. The meaning can be illustrated by Psalm 17, 3, when the psalmist said, I have purposed, I have determined, I have made this resolution that my mouth shall not transgress. Psalm 39, 1, the psalmist said, I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. Where the lips keep knowledge, they're protected against the lips of the strange woman. For example, against her charms, because they will be safeguarded with purity. Verse 3. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. And this is where the term is, honey dripper. She's a honey dripper. Solomon now talks about the one he warns about here, using two familiar figures. He describes the, the, the nature of the immoral woman's charms in, in this verse. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey. She's a sweet talker. She says sweet things. She's a stranger to the young man that she's trying to charm. She's either a Gentile or another man's wife. And like honey is sweet and pleasant to the taste. In a greater word, Solomon is saying it in a greater way that her words are pleasant to the senses. She knows how to flatter. She knows how to say the things that that the man wants to hear. Solomon says her mouth is smoother than oil. For example, her words are very believable and persuasive. She says the sweetest things. And the guys just eat it up. Verse 4. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. The contrast is made here between the great power of what the immoral woman says and the destructive consequences that overtake those who listen to her and and fall for her invitations. She promises a good time, pleasure, risk-free. But Solomon says in in the end, she's as bitter as wormwood. Now, wormwood is any of several species of shrub like plants of the genus Artemisia, known for its bitter taste. There's biblical references to the plant, uh, uh, the plant wormwood. They're metaphors for bitterness and sorrow. You know, they suggest the doomed circumstances, including warnings against an illicit affair with an immoral woman, woman as here in verse 4. It also, you know, uh, re- refers to, an, uh, uh, to the bitterness of God's judgment on sin or the judgment and subjugation and, and homelessness and injustice. Those are bitter things. This also talks about her being sharp as a two-edged sword. Her end is as sharp as the sharpest sword. It means that, that when she's done with you, there's, there's sad regret. There's a grieving heart and ultimately death. This is what her victims experience. Verse 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. Verses 5 and 6 continue describing the immoral woman. She leads her victims to destruction. She's on, the fa- she's on the fast lane to death and hell. And so are all of those who listen to her and get caught up in her. Verse 6. Lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable. You do not know them. 
In other words, she doesn't care at all about the path that she's on, the life that she's living. Solomon says her ways are unstable. You don't know what she's going to do next. She staggers down a crooked trail. She doesn't even know it. She can't recognize it because, again, sin clouds your vision. She doesn't walk in the path of life. Her life is is made up of her own plans, of her own choices. All of them describing the very foolish behavior of this immoral woman. And the words describe very clearly the terrible condition of her heart and her soul that prostitution brings on its victims. Her path is one of continual, willful, headstrong, blind foolishness and wickedness. Verse 7. Therefore, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Because he's saying of what I've just told you in verses 1 through 6, what I've just finished telling you, therefore, depart from her. Depart from her and and not from the words of my mouth. Here the teacher now calls for the strictest attention of the young. Now you would think that that, that, that he's already said enough about about how to keep the young man from having sex with the immoral woman. She's been described for what she really is. Just carelessly diving headfirst into ruin herself and then taking her victims with her. Through deceitful deceitfulness full of charm she's neither walking in nor knows the way of life but the warning is made stronger and made even more impressive here there's another side of the picture and it's the complete bodily and deadly ruin of her victim this is the physical ruin all right this is the physical ruin bodily and deadly ruin of her victim The teacher is asking for the young man to take a personal interest in what he's about to say. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Which should keep young men away from the immoral woman. Verse 8. Remove your way, notice, far from her and do not go near the door of her house. In the words of Paul, he said, flee fornication. Run like Joseph did. Joseph just took off running, and that's what you have to do. You can't stop and think about it. You can't, you know, mull it over. No, you got to run. Because your flesh is going to give in. The idea is that the young man has come within the area of these temptations of the woman. Or that he's in the greatest danger of being vulnerable to her temptations. He's too close. He says, don't go near the door of her house. For example, avoid the very place where she lives. She and her house are to be avoided as if they were infected with a highly infectious, deadly disease, which she could be. Remember, we read in Proverbs 4, 14 and 15, when it talked about entering the path of evil. Psalm said, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel around it. Turn away from it and pass on and everything. Do everything you can to stay away. You know, if there's, there's a temptation in one's life, you know, go completely to the other side of town to get away from it. It's like the alcoholic who's trying to recover. And he knows that he can't touch 
alcohol anymore. You know, he drives down a certain street. He knows there's a bar on that street. Hey, don't go down that street. Drive clear across town that you, that you, so that you're going so far around it. You know, you avoid that temptation of, of maybe pulling in there and, and just having a drink. Don't go near the place. Avoid it. Turn away from it. Pass on. Verse 9. And here's why. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. What Solomon is saying here is that the immoral woman will destroy the young man sexually. In verses 9 through 11. This gives a true picture of the end result of venereal disease. In the end, there's mourning when the flesh and the body are consumed by it. And the reason why the prostitute is to be avoided are given here one right after another. The word honor here isn't so much about the honor of the young man, the reputation, but the grace and the, ref- and the freshness of his youth. For example, it's, it's speaking about the best and most vigorous and most useful and valuable years of his life. The moral of the warning is, is don't waste your life. Verse 10, again, lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. This is another deadly consequence of and warning against a life of depravity. The meaning of the verse is that a life of impurity transferred the wicked one's belongings, his wealth and possessions to somebody else, to others, who will be satisfied at his expense And they're strangers that could care less about his ruin. Verse 11. And then you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. And here's the last reason to avoid this wickedness. The harlot. The last reason is the mental torment that follows when your health is ruined and your wealth is wasted. It's not the sad crying or the quiet grief in that person's heart that Solomon means here. It's the loud cry of weeping. It's the groaning that, that indicates severe mental suffering and stress caused by his past foolishness, which he sees there's no remedy for it in the future. Now he can catch a, a deadly disease that, that there's no cure for. Because he didn't listen to the words of wisdom. Verses 12 and 13. And say, notice, how I have hated instruction and my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. There's, There's the torment. Not listening to the advice of someone who Loves me and cares for me and gave me good advice. Verses 12 through 13. Solomon here speaks about the immoral woman who will destroy you spiritually. Regret comes with the unavoidable groaning. In other words, how did I let this happen? How could I have been so stupid? And hated instruction. I was warned. About living this kind of, of, of 
harlotry or depravity, sexual impurity. But he says here, my heart hated instruction. His heart rejected inwardly whatever his outward behavior was. And, and the guilt that followed after I had been with her, he says. The ruined sinner admits, you know, it's not like I didn't have any teachers. It's not like I didn't have anybody to tell me not to do this. I, I, it's not that I didn't have any advisors. It's not like I didn't know any better. I just didn't pay attention to their warnings and their rebukes. Why? We never think it's going to happen to us. Those involved in adultery and caught in adultery, they think nobody will find out. Nothing will happen. Never dream in a million million years they, they catch some STD. Or get the, 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 the woman pregnant. And ruin their marriage. The lives of their family. And be eaten up by it. Satan never tells you that part. All he says is, hey, go for it. You know, you're, you're, you're going to be okay. It's going to be fun. Verse 14. Listen to what he says. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Even my fellowship with my brothers and sisters didn't stop me. The immoral woman will destroy you Socially. He says, I wasn't ashamed of my behavior. He says, I didn't care. There was hardly no wickedness that I didn't do. It was unrestrained. Even though I was in the presence of the assembly and the congregation. Think of it, no conviction. Didn't bother him, didn't think twice about it. The fact that the ruined young man grieves shows how big, how, the, how, the, how big and bold the boldness of his sins were. Because he ignored the warnings. He ignored the rebukes of his teachers and his friends. But even more than that, he ignored the presence of the congregation of God's people. They didn't have any restraining effect on him either. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Drink water from your own cistern. In other words, seek the satisfaction of your natural God-given desires from the wife of your own choice or within the legitimate boundary of marriage. The pure Innocent and chaste nature of these pleasures is appropriately compared with the pure and wholesome waters of the cistern or the well. The word drink here, when he says drink water from your own cistern, the word drink carries the idea of satisfying a natural desire. You know, when you have that natural desire of thirst, there's nothing like water that quenches that desire, that quenches that thirst. And in oriental and scriptural usage, the wife is compared with a cistern and a well because they were valuable to to the family back then. The similar term here, running water, describes the flowing crystal clear stream. It fits like the other, the cistern or the well, for drinking purposes. 
It can be said that the reference to the wife as a cistern or a well used in here in Scripture, it enhances her value. There were wars over water in those days. There were wars over wells in those days. Because they were valuable to the people. They were precious to the people. We need water. And it shows the high value in which the wife is to be held. Since the cistern or well was one of the most valuable possessions and meaningful parts of the eastern home. Verses 16 and 17. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. The words fountains and streams of waters, fountains and streams are to be understood as children. The legitimate children of a lawful marriage. Let them fill the streets. Just just enjoy being a family man and a father and the joy of your wife and the joy of many children. Ecclesiastes 9.9, Solomon wrote this. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun. All your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. By keeping yourself to your lawful wife, you can be assured. First of all, that the children are your own. And that unstrained and unlawful sex won't go on. Verses 18 and 19. It says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. These two verses describe love in marriage and the Word of God makes it very clear that physical and sexual love in marriage are to be sanctified holy, set apart just for a husband and wife, and it brings it to a very high level. Notice how God describes physical love in marriage here. He lifts it to the highest level. That's because marriage was designed, remember this, marriage was designed by God himself and was given to the human family for the welfare and the good of mankind. And a part of immorality today is the attempt to get rid of marriage or redefine it. To make a revision to to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. What marriage is. For the child of God, the Christian home is a... And here's here's the thing. For the child of God, for the Christian, the Christian home is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And the world's trying to redefine that. And what they're doing by saying who can get married and men and women and all, what it's doing, it is erasing or they're trying to erase the picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ's creation, Christ's order. You just can't have a relationship higher or holier than the one that God has created. That's why it's so disturbing to see that even Christian couples in the church are breaking up. This should cause the church to get down on its knees before God and find out what is wrong. The failure rate for marriages in the church, those who profess to be Christians, is anywhere from 50 to 60%. 
Now, if you worked in a job and your product had a failure rate of 50 to 60%, I guarantee you, your managers, your bosses would be investigating why is that happening? Why? It's a sign that the word of God is not getting through to the people. And I remember when I did a lot of marriage counseling. And they would begin to tell me their problems and what's happening. I said, well, you know, this is one of the things the Bible says. And they would say, I know. I don't have anything to tell you. Once you tell me I know, I'm done. I always tell, why do you come to receive counseling if you're not going to take it? Because I don't have anything to tell you. I don't have anything that can help you. It's like they want me to wave a magic wand over their heads and everything's going to be fine. That when they leave, it's all going to change. Good marriages don't happen. You make them happen. And, and, and I liken it to going to a doctor. When you know you're sick, you know something's wrong, and you go to the doctor and you say, hey, doc, there's, there's something wrong. There, I just, there's something wrong. Well, there's something going on that I, I don't know what it is. What does he do? He gives you an examination. He takes some tests. He says, well, here's, here's the problem. And then he tells you how to fix it. And he writes out a prescription for you. And he says, here, go get this prescription filled, take all of the medicine, and you'll get better. But, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to take the medicine. I don't, you know, for whatever, I, you know, and so you wad up the prescription and you throw it away. Once you have been given the prescription, the doctor's job is done. Once you've received the counsel of the word of God, that, that counselor's job is done. Now you take the medicine and you will get better. And taking the medicine means working out the problem, working through the problem. But more people would rather walk out than work out. Because working it out takes effort. It takes denying of self on your part many times. And you know, one of the problems is we're always waiting for the other person to change before I change. Or when you stop doing that, then I'll... Let me tell you something. And I saw it in my own marriage. When you begin to... Do what God has told you to do. That can change it for the other person. But no, we're sitting there doing this. You this, you that. You know what, Lord? Show me what I need to do. Show me where I'm wrong so that I can fix it. And you know, if we're both working, if the husband and wife are both working on fixing themselves, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. God's word promises it. And remember when, when in, in Matthew 19, when Jesus said the, the only reason that God allowed divorce because of the hardness of man's heart. And the reason was <clears throat> that hardness is really saying because you're unwilling to forgive. You're unwilling to forgive. You know, there, there's two things that must be practiced in marriage. Two, two sentences. Honey, I'm sorry. And the other one, honey, I forgive you. But most of the time, they're not willing to do that. And it doesn't get better. And in time, they walk out the door. You know, see, it's not influencing and swaying the lives of those 
uh, uh, that word of God is not, it's not influencing and swaying the, uh, swaying the life of those members in the church. God's word isn't getting through to the people. Verse 18 says, the wife is called your fountain. Just as she was called your, your own cistern and your own well in verse 15. And the figure, figure seems to determine that the blessing spoken of here consists in the wife being a fruitful mother of children. And as a result, the phrase means, let your fountain be blessed. Let your wife be blessed. Or remember, rendered, let her be happy in being the mother of your children. Every Israelite wife thought of herself and was thought of by others as blessed if she had children and she was unhappy if she didn't. Verse 19 shows us the tender affection and the excited pleasure of love. God says she's like a a loving, graceful doe. Which describes the gracefulness and the form and the fascinating charms of the man's wife. And it says, be enraptured by her love. The word rapture is intoxicated. He will be intoxicated with satisfaction in the pleasure that she gives. She's to be the object of your love and devotion. The one in whom your affections are to find the fulfillment of their desires. Love and grace are her possessions. This speaks of the strong influence that the attractions of the wife are to maintain. It applies to both. But here Solomon is teaching the young man something. The teacher uses a bold illustration to describe the entire fascination that the husband is to allow his wife to exercise over him. Verse 20. For why should you, my son, notice, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? He says, son, why why would you do something like this? The only reason that you can give for being unfaithful is the lustful and immoral desires of your flesh. Carnality. And it didn't start one morning when you woke up. I'm going to start messing around. It didn't happen that morning. It's been happening. You've been watching somebody or something. And you've been entertaining the idea. And it begins to grow. Maybe it's somebody at work. Somebody you met randomly. And you begin to entertain the thought. Pretty soon, you act out the thought. Instead of running like Joseph did. The moment that thought Satan puts into the head, then we got to say, Lord, take this from me and pray it through till it's gone. And that's what we do with every temptation. Pray it through till it's gone. He says, he said, son, why would you do that? It's nothing more than sensuality in its lowest form, enraptured, You know, don't be beguiled by her. Verse 21. For the ways of man are better. I'm sorry. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all of his past. The obvious meaning here is that there's no possibility of any act of immorality that God doesn't see. 
He's telling us, son, look, son, there's nothing. There's nothing you can do. There's no act that you can commit that, that, that God doesn't see. In Proverbs 15, 3, it says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. You can't hide from God. And though Satan might say, oh, it's just me and her, or, you know, to the woman I say, it's, it's just between her and him. Wrong. There's three people that, are, that see what's going on. The third one's God. Knowing this, remembering this, when you begin or somebody begins to entertain having an affair or, or, or beginning to flirt with the idea, remember, it's not just you and that person, it's God too. He's, he's listening to everything that's going on in your mind. Remember Psalm 139, that God knows every thought, even from afar off. Everything you're thinking about, everything you're thinking about doing, He knows. The Lord's eyes are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Knowing this should keep us, knowing this should be a restraining um, reason not to do it. Because the Bible says God sees everything and he will punish every transgression. God is omniscient. He sees everything. He's omnipotent. He's he's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And it says he ponders all of his paths. Verse 21 says, and God ponders all of, all of our, he, know, he knows everywhere we're walking. God, God not only sees, but he evaluates everything that a man does. Wherever he is, whatever he does, and, and God will, will, will reward according to our works. And punishments will be based on a man's actions as well. Verse 22. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man and he is caught in the, in the cords of his sin. In other words, his many sins will overtake him. They will bind him. They will tie him up. He's held captive by his own sins. And the images that are used here are from the snare of the fowler, a trap. His sins will overtake him. The ungodly man without doubt points to the adulterer. It's his sins that will overtake him, not somebody else's. And those sins are going to come down upon his own head. And and his character is described in these condemning words, the wicked man. Notice his own iniquities entrap the wicked man. Why? Because that's what he is. The word entrap literally means to take or catch animals in a snare or net. Solomon is saying the wicked man becomes entangled, is, 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 becomes tangled and caught in his own sins. And he's struck down and he's trapped by them. Just as the prey is struck by the snare of the fowler. The wicked man, it says, will be caught with the cords of his sin. It's not so much that every man, every sin that man commits will hold him. Though this is true, as much as the particular sin that's the subject here, which is adultery, that will do this. The cords of his sin means that the the, the cords that his sin weaves around is like a spider web. That spider web that that when somebody, uh, some insect 
gets caught in the spider's web. That spider goes there and what is he? He just wraps that web around him until he's totally wrapped up and that thing cannot get away. It can't escape. And this will be all that it takes to bind him and to hold him firmly for his judgment, for his punishment. Verse 23. He shall die for lack of instruction and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. He'll die for lack of instruction because he didn't pay any attention to instruction. You know, and it sounds like it's saying here that, that the adulterer, adulterer has been without instruction because it says he, he shall die for lack of instruction. It doesn't mean that he didn't have any, any instruction. It's not like there was no one to rebuke him. It was not like there was no one to counsel him. But th- this isn't the case. He had been warned. About the the dangers and the evil consequences of his sin. But he didn't pay any attention to these warnings. So he might as well have not had instruction. Because he didn't pay any attention. He didn't pay to the attention and the warnings that the teacher gave him. That said as a result of this immoral wicked behavior. You're going to die. It's because he didn't consider or use the instruction. That he's going to die along with those who have no instruction. It's the same thing. They die without wisdom because they have ignored. They have disregarded the lessons of wisdom. They shall die without knowledge. Because of the enormity of his foolishness, he will go astray. And he will trip and fall and stagger to his ruin. And it all now comes to a head in the way of the end uh, uh, that the adulterer is described. His end is without a ray of hope. Of satisfaction. With his understanding darkened. And his heart hardened. By his uncontrolled flesh. His uncontrolled lust. And by foolishness. All of these things that have reached its peak. And because he has persistently indulged. And he has willfully set aside. And rejected wisdom and true happiness. The adulterer. Like the drunkard who's not aware of the danger that's in front of him, he's going to stagger and he's going to fall to his ruin. The cords of sin, mentioned in verse 22, get stronger and stronger the more that we sin. They get tighter and tighter. And yet sin lies to us. Sin deceives us into thinking that we're free. And that that we can quit sinning whenever we want to. And that's how alcoholism and drug addiction and many other addictions or habits start. I can quit whenever I want. And as the habits continue, those, those, those cords of sin, they begin to form. And they get tighter and they get tighter as we continue in sin. And then we find out one day to our misery and our suffering, I don't have the strength to break those cords. I can't do it. In closing, millions of people today are in bondage like that. They're in bondage in one way or another. And you know what? They're looking for a way out. 
And like we saw in the book of Acts this morning, Christianity is the only hope for the world. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. The only one who can set them free from the cords, those cords of sin is Jesus Christ. And as Jesus said, therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word. Powerful, encouraging word, God. And Lord, as men, Father, help us. Lord, help us to heed your word, God. And one of the dangers of men is to think, as they get older, it will never happen to me. But David is about 50 years old when he fell in sexual sin. Your word is for the young as well as the old. There are principles that we are to live by, to stand on. And never to think for one moment that I can't fall into that type of sin. Father, help the men of God, the men of the church, Lord, to be wise. To be looking unto Jesus and nowhere else. To put those blinders on. To help us to see straight ahead, Lord. Looking at the final destiny of our hope in Christ. And that is heaven. Father, help us to Put nothing wicked before our eyes, Lord. And as Job said to not look upon a maiden. Father, help us to be the man of God that you've called us to be. Faithful to our wives, God. Upholding your word, your standard, God. To value her like you value your bride, the church, and how you take care of her. Provide for her, love her. Do all that you can for her, God. And so, Father, we thank you. And Lord, may you just bless the rest of our our week, Lord. Watch over us, protect us. May the words of your mouth, Lord, just run through our minds all all through the week, God, all the time and in every place, God. So, Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. And, God, may we, again, always depend upon the Holy Spirit, his power, his wisdom, his leading to get us through, to give us wisdom. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.